Street Show. I'm Donia Ziai, the host of the show, and I'm here with our usual panel. Martin Lukacs here in Montreal, Elle Jones in Halifax, and Pam Palmiter in Toronto. Hi, everyone. Hey. Hi. Hey. So we've got a few topics up for discussion on today's program. First, with the news that Elon Musk has bought Twitter, we're going to weigh in on the good, the bad, and the ugly of social media especially as it relates to movement organizing and the left. We're also going to chat about the Convoy 2.0, the far-right biker convoy that's planning to arrive in Ottawa on Friday. And a little later in the program, I'll talk to D.T. Cochran, an economist who will give us a perspective on inflation that we're not hearing very much of in mainstream media coverage. So stay tuned for that. richest man in the world just bought Twitter, Elon Musk, the CEO of Tesla, managed to convince the board of the social media giant to accept an offer of $44 billion. Here he is explaining why. It's very important for uh, there to be an inclusive arena for free speech, uh, where all, so uh, yeah. Twitter has become kind of the de facto town square. Uh, it, it, it's just really important that people have the, both the, uh, the reality and the perception uh, that they are able to speak freely within the bounds of the law. So what does this mean for the future of Twitter? Well, we're going to spend this segment diving into how progressives should orient themselves to this new reality and to social media in general. Martin, I want to ask you first. Why is Musk buying Twitter and will it actually change anything? And I mean, can it actually make Twitter any more of a cesspool than it actually is already? <laughs> um, good question. As the saying goes, uh, Elon Musk is extremely online. You know, he spends a lot of time tweeting. He has a lot of strong feelings about the platform. And I think as rich men are wont to do, he is just buying outright a very shiny thing that he finds attractive. I think there's an economic aspect to this as well. He has raised an astro astronomical amount of money for Tesla over the years. And I think that in part has been about this mystique that he's cultivated online as this kind of like, you know, weird guru tech genius savior. Even though, of course, like Tesla wouldn't have been possible without billions of dollars in public money and in government research and development over the years. So I think, you know, people like exclaim like, oh, he's sending rockets to the moon or space. He's, you know, building these big underground transportation tunnels. And, and he's also like kooky and weird and posts like memes online. And so I think like his buying Twitter is, is about, you know, buying something that has been kind of central to his success. He also obviously says that, you know, free speech is a big part of why he's doing this. I think he has a very narrow conception of free speech. It means probably things like bringing Donald Trump back onto the platform, relaxing the regulations that has seen, you know, some people get kicked off for abusive behavior and harassment. But I don't, ex I don't really expect the fundamentals of, of Twitter to change. You know, it's still ultimately a for-profit social media company whose main purpose is to create, collect, mine and monetize our data. And I also think a lot of the really negative aspects of Twitter that are kind of baked into its design will continue. You know, the way it incentivizes and promotes narcissism, it encourages cruelty and harassment, it erodes empathy, it um, exacerbates isolation. 
uh, keeps us glued to the screen and also puts, a, puts up a lot of barriers to left-wing organizing. That said, I think that you know, leftists can't really just abandon the platform. It is to some extent ha has become a kind of public square, a very degraded one. Um, so I think we're probably best to, even if reluctantly, try to engage as effectively as possible with this platform. There were a lot of uh, posts on Twitter this week, people kind of declaring that they're going to leave Twitter. And I actually, like, I th there have been some numbers showing that people are stopping uh, engaging with Twitter. But I mean, to backtrack a little bit um, and look at how historically movements have, have used Twitter, I wonder, Pam, if there isn't also strategic ways for us as movements to collectively use social media. So I'm thinking, for example, of how a movement like Idle No More was able to, to go national and then go international and whether that would have even been possible if it didn't harness basically the possibilities that were what was made possible by social media, basically. Well, I think you've really hit on a core point here that, you know, there's tools that have good and bad inherent in everything. But social media has provided a real opportunity for people to have a voice that didn't have a voice before. It was an end run around mainstream media that wasn't having mm -hmm. black and indigenous voices and certainly not women's voices. It was an end run around, you know, constantly just repeating what politicians and police officers and military and everyone else was saying, you know, that kind of echo chamber for themselves. This was the voice of the people. Now, for Idle No More, we essentially organized the vast majority of our round dances, our teachings, our gatherings and everything with the use of Twitter and I would say Facebook, mm -hmm. those two primarily, obviously other ones, but they, they were really essential for that purpose because before we were relying on you know telephones and faxes like in the old days our kind of protests <laughs> this really opened it up and so that the world could also see what was going on and not through the lens of mainstream media so for me i've always thought that we can use social media strategically in a way that focuses on how we want to use it as a tool and not give any energy or time or attention to all the bad parts of Twitter, you know? So all the spams, the bots, the haters, trolls. the trolls, <laughs> the people who are, you know, on, on social media farms, just cranking out hate and content. You could just like block and delete all of that stuff and just focus on your message. I think where people get caught up in that is just fully engaging with all of these bots or social media farms or trying to win the fights on Twitter. I just don't have a conversation on Twitter. It's like, here's what Elle's doing in Halifax. Look at this amazing report. Here's the link to it. Read it and see what you think about X, Y, and Z or someone else. Or here's this really critical court case that came out and here's what it means for us. Like informational stuff, uh, research stuff, data, analysis, linking people to, look, land defenders are on the ground right now. They're being attacked by the RCMP. We need everyone's help. We need legal observers, human rights observers, that kind of thing. So it's instant. It's quick. It's far quicker than mainstream media is. We can literally watch in real time what's happening so that it can't be refuted later on by the people who would otherwise control it. So I, I like social media for that purpose. 
with the understanding though that you know there really needs to be education around how to use it strategically how to protect people especially young people mm-hmm. uh, from the dangers of social media and all of the noise that's out there and how it gets intermixed with your personal life and what you're doing you know in advocacy or politics or that kind of thing but I think social media isn't going anywhere, and I think it's something that we're going to have to continue to use unless there's some other you know, platform that becomes more powerful in terms of instant communications and organizing. Obviously recognizing that you know, if someone like Elon Musk controls Twitter, then it's, not, it's potentially not going to be the same tool in the same way it was, and we have to, we have to prepare for that kind of stuff. But, you know, going back to real quick to to Idle No More, like I remember at the time the sense of awe that a lot of us felt at the power that social media tools had in in kind of spreading the word about the movement. And I a few years before that, too, we had Tahrir Square in Egypt or the the so-called Arab Spring. There was the Iranian Green Movement, the Occupy Wall Street global movement, too. They all created this sense of like almost (laughs) romanticized, techno-utopian kind of faith and confidence in in digital media, which I feel like by now has kind of faded into much more of like a digital pessimism. Now, what we tend to talk more about is the downsides of digital surveillance, of algorithms that kind of define how we engage with each other and, and share content and things like that. And, and the way that these algorithms feed into and amplify inflammatory, usually racist, right-wing voices much more than they do reasonable discourse. I just wonder, um, Elle, in this kind of context, I mean, can these tools serve us on the left? Well, I think it's always interesting that we're hearing this phrase, public square. First of all, the, the idea that people adopt that phrase as though we have any kind of public square at all. Like, go try and stand in your public square locally and start (laughs) saying things and see how quick the cops will come. Any public space we know can immediately be turned into private space and you'll be accused of of trespassing, right? Go stand on the road outside of Canada Post and, like, try and protest and it becomes private. So it's this myth, right, that, first of all, there's a public square, period. Secondly, the idea that that will take place through a corporation is actually, I think, a very worrisome concept. The idea that we keep saying Twitter is the public square without actually really thinking about what does it mean that we cede that space to a corporate controlled space? It's not a public square if you need to have Wi-Fi to get on it. It's not a public square if you need to have computer or phone access. It's not a public square if if you don't have Twitter, which I don't have, you actually can't read it any longer unless you go on private because they're trying to coerce you into downloading the app. You don't have to download your local square when you go outside, right? So, you know, is it actually public? And we, of course, know that 10% of people make like 90% of the tweets and it's journalists, academics. It's a particular kind of space that often people who are more elite gravitate to, right? So to hire Square, for example, I remember all that kind of Twitter propaganda where people were like, oh, it was Twitter, but people actually went out and put their bodies in the square. Like it was physical. Twitter communicated, but they didn't stop on Twitter. They went outside. And I really think this idea that like we don't need to be outside and we don't need to be present with each other and we don't need to have spaces in our neighborhoods where we gather, which doesn't happen so often is part of the reason why we become so alienated from ourselves and from our communities and from our neighborhoods. And that 
actually leads to things like more isolation, more policing, like less connection with each other. Um, so I, I just question that. I also think, I mean, I think it is important that a lot of communities like disabled communities, trans communities have been saying that, you know, this is the way that we're able to come together. And I don't want to erase that in critiquing social media, that a lot of people are saying, you know, you don't see like numbers of trans people in the way that you see or are able to see on Twitter. And if this gets fractured, we're going to have to find other platforms and regroup. And this has happened before. And there's always a kind of break or people with disabilities that can't physically go outside, but can access and organize and be part of things in ways that you may not be physically able to do. So I do think that's important. But I also think sometimes something is lost. Like, you know, Pam was saying we used to call each other and stuff. Phone trees did have a purpose, though, too. We got in contact. You know, we had to check on each other. Um, we had to call our elders. I think often we assume that because it's so easy to organize on social media that we just have to put out the poster, sit back and wait and not actually do the solidarity building work that other things required. We had mailing lists and we had to, you know, know where each other were. And we, we checked in with each other. And we had to know which organization will we go to to spread the word. And that, I do think, created a kind of solidarity that perhaps we've got lazy about because it's much easier just to put something up on Twitter or on Facebook or on Instagram, rather than being like, who in my community needs to hear this? And then people are like, I didn't hear about the thing. I didn't know there was a protest. Why did nobody tell me? Um, I also do think that, I mean, I'm the boomer of the crowd, I guess. Like I'm an early onset boomer when it comes <laughs> to social media. Like I'm not on Twitter. I never have been. And the reason was largely harassment reasons. Um, you know, in Halifax, I'm a quite prominent, you know, black woman that's outspoken. And I look at my friends' Twitters and I see, you know, no matter what you post, you know, you can post a picture of yourself hugging a puppy and some white supremacists will be under there talking to you about black people shoot each other in Chicago. What are you doing about that? And to me, that is just mentally unhealthy. Like, I don't want to bring that into my space. So even though there's things that people will tell me, you know, you should get on Twitter to promote this, you know, you could have these conversations I have made a conscious choice to say I will give up those things that might lead to certain types of communication because I just can't take on uh, those kind of responses. You know, Pam was saying shutting out the trolling, but I shut it out by not participating in it. And then the more you feel coerced into it, the more I feel stubborn about it. Yes. The idea that you you want me to have this, like you're trying to force me to have this. So watch me not have it. Now what? You know, like I just, I do feel that there is a kind of, I don't like the idea that we all sort of feel swept away that there's, you know, nothing we can do under this neoliberal tech regime. We just have to all buy into it and it's there and we just have to promote ourselves through it. I just don't like that. And I do think that there's forms of discourse that, and I'm not saying they can't take place alongside Twitter, but I do, I guess this is the boomer in me, I do really worry about the kind of shortcuts to intellectual discourse, the shortcuts to sharing. And I suppose that in so much of my life, because many of the people I do organize with are people in prisons who do not have access, never mind to Twitter, they don't have online access at all, like to go to school, to fill out a human rights complaint, that doesn't exist. And we've organized strikes successfully, we talk to each other successfully, um, in many ways, we're able to organize. Obviously, we're always under surveillance, right? Like those phones are listened to. Like there's never a free space of organizing in a prison. But the idea that we can't get it done without being online or without being on Twitter just isn't true. And there's so many spaces where you actually can organize online and you have to find really creative ways to talk to each other, to signal things to each other, to get organized. Yeah, I, I totally hear what you're saying, Ellen. I think I, I also have very strong boomer tendencies. I really don't envy young people who are becoming politically active and politically aware now. Like so much of the behavior that social media is intended to reward, like 
you know, outrage, hostility, simplistic analysis, drawing attention to yourself uh, is antithetical to, you know, learning the craft and art and science of organizing and of changing the world. You know, and if you're, a, if you're like a young person who's getting active now, social media offers this kind of tantalizing option where you can start posting, you know, dunking on dumb politicians, and immediately you get this gratification, you know, these like little gerbil pellets of uh, immediate dopamine affirmation. There's a study that showed that for every word of outrage that you add to a tweet, there's 20% more likely to, that it's going to get retweeted. You know, so it can make you feel powerful. And uh, I saw a lot of this during the Bernie's campaign for the nomination of the Democratic Party. A lot of people thought that, you know, if they ratio a corporate Democratic operative, then somehow that's going to translate to power in the in the real world on, on the on the organizing train. And I think people were in for a pretty rude awakening there. So in many ways, Twitter and social media pushes you towards trying to seek those immediate hits and that immediate gratification when so much of organizing is, I mean, the best of it is about diligent, persistent, often unrecognized work um, that takes months, years, a decade, even a generation to really pay off. And so I, I worry that people are, you know, being sucked in by the allure of, uh, of the medium. And, and then also, I think, like, I've met young people who have huge followings on Twitter, but are terrified of the prospect of, for instance, doing door-to-door -door canvassing, you know, door-to-door -door organizing, which is really the, the root and stock of transformative work that we do in person. And I also worry that, and now I guess I'm really sounding like a boomer or curmudgeon, but like, I think that also these like, you know, quick dopamine hits are really no, they really don't stand up alongside the thrills and even joy of organizing that you can experience, like when you are moving in a crowd of thousands of people or, you know, seeing a young person's eyes light up at an inspirational uh, speech given in person at an event or, you know, budding connections that organizers are making at an organizing meeting, you know, in person. And that's the thing when you think about all of it. You don't just do one thing. You don't just only call people or only meet in person, or only use Twitter, or only march in the streets. I mean, if our way of advocating and organizing together was just one thing all the time, we, we wouldn't be able to adapt to what the government's using. What, you know, like we, it's also a multitude of tools. So sometimes litigation is the thing. Sometimes litigation would be the worst thing. Sometimes it's international advocacy. Sometimes it's political advocacy. Sometimes it's testifying in parliament. Sometimes it's, you know, speaking out in the media. None of those things individually are 100% effective for everything that you want to do for every single situation that we advocate in. It's about where are the people? And, you know, I didn't get on Twitter or Instagram or TikTok or any of those things because I knew anything about it. It was my kids saying, Mom, kids aren't watching CBC News. If you want to get to these kids, here's where they are. And back in the Facebook day, it's like, here's where all the communities are. And then they're like, okay, now mom, it's on Twitter. Here's where people are having these conversations or spreading information so that you get information quickly every day. So they keep reminding me as much younger than I am that we also have to make an effort to go where people are 
And we also do like social media research in the sense of, and here's something really ironic, that there's a lot of women involved in social organizing that prefer to organize and gather online mm-hmm. because in person is just so inherently violent and dangerous. Knowing that online is inherently a violent and dangerous place and that women are targets, especially racialized women, right? And so you've got to find a way to meet people where they are and where they want to be met at. And for, you know, most native communities, we prefer to be on the ground in the communities. But then there's other groups who are like, you know what, the safest place for me is in a virtual world where we can gather and and talk about and strategize and do these things. And I think we're all over the place. That being said, we always have to bring it back to how do we make all of these things effective and get rid of the worst parts of these things in very strategic ways without being dependent on any single one of these avenues? It should be just all of it. Pam, I'm surprised you didn't. I'm surprised you didn't mention your TikTok, like your latest social media channel, and the dance moves you have there. Very Gosh, impressive. No. <laughs> no. I was going to say what makes the whole thing about absolute free speech on Twitter interesting is public spaces have things like bylaws. You know, like mm. if you're just standing on the street and someone walks up to you and tells them to suck their D, like most people probably call the police, right? But if somebody does that on Twitter, that's some kind of absolute free speech. So I also find that interesting as though public space isn't regulated in all kinds of ways. Negatively, obviously, a lot of the time through policing, evacuating mm. homeless people from our spaces, like not allowing spaces for drug users. But also, of course, we regulate space as well. Like when we're in organizing spaces and we collect the garbage together and make sure people are monitoring. But the idea that there's, it's almost like man in the state of nature, right? This idea that there's some ideal free space that is the public square that is only being ruined by like, when you tell somebody they can't threaten a black woman. But I bet you if like I walked around screaming at Elon Musk on the street and like followed him around, he'd be like, harassment, right? So yeah, I also find that interesting. Like what do we exactly mean by public? And as if public isn't controlled, as if we don't have rules, as if we don't have respect and mutual ways of, of being together and that free for all is the only way to imagine some kind of free speech, freedom or free expression. That's ridiculous. I think for me too, like the idea of how we should on our, in our movements, leverage the tools of social media is also important because you know, who's really good at leveraging social media? It's the right, you know, like their, their use of like, um, online spaces, things like messaging boards, it's been so effective at organizing or recruiting new followers and organizing people and bringing them out to their causes. And so I worry that by not figuring out how to use these tools to our own advantage, that we're kind of seeding that ground over to them. Yeah, I mean, I think it's undeniably true that, like, that's one of the reasons why we have to do educational work online as much as possible. But as Pam was saying, like, we should have a kind of political hygiene about it. I mean, that's certainly like my policy is I never get in, d- into debates with people online. I, I always think of that cartoon with like a man hunched over his computer and his like wife is like, honey, time to come to bed. And he's like, I can't. There's someone wrong on the Internet. Um, <laughs> yeah. And so it's like, you know, you can always pick a fight, but I don't think it's actually very productive. So my policy is generally post and then get off. But I do think a lot of people, especially young people, especially people who you know, are, are in hostile situations or where there's reactionary politics in their local communities, they do go online for new ideas 
And so I think we need to create those kind of on-ramps where people can get politicized. And so I think as much as possible, we should be on these social media platforms, sharing articles, sharing analysis, you know, deepening our collective analysis as much as possible, highlighting the collective work that's being done, not trying to build you know, individual brands. Because I think that's a trap that you can get into. We should always think about social media as a thing we do, not as an identity that we, we have. I think, you know, to the extent that it can be usefully used, it's, it's done in that kind of way. And I don't think we should ever fall into the trap of worrying about what the right is doing in any kind of sense of, let's learn lessons from the right. Yeah, the right is good at using hate to manufacture hate and violence. There's no lesson in there that I want to extract and replicate in any sense, not for a view, not for a retweet, not for anything else. It's exactly what they do that helps them create their own echo chamber and be famous in their own echo chamber that we don't want to emulate. The last thing I would want to do is use hate to stoke more hate and use fear to stoke more fear and chaos and uncertainty and, you know, people grasping at straws and having anxiety and kids not knowing what to do. Like, there's nothing good about what they do. Yeah, they trigger algorithms, but is that a thing that we want to emulate? Is it the algorithm that we want to trigger? One of the things that's really characteristic of power is a simultaneous way of like at once claiming that you a dominant you totalize power and also then disavowing any kind of power at the same time, right? So what I mean by this, so people will simultaneously say Twitter is the public square. So it's so important, you know, for democracy that we can't censor it, but then also say it's just Twitter. It's just online. If somebody's harassing you, why does it matter? It's not even real. And I'm like, you can't have it both ways. Is it real or is it not? But then also Twitter is this huge force in a democracy. And it's because it is actually in many ways, unfortunately, because it's a corporate platform, a uh, force in democracy. Like we should all be really worried about what it means for a billionaire to control that space of how we speak, of how we vote, of how we organize. And I, I think everybody should be terrified about what, whether that's, you know, thinking about corporate regulation of the space and wanting Twitter to regulate how we speak, or whether that's the idea of, you know, allowing everybody to run rampant in the name of some kind of absolutism. I think they're both frightening. And really what this is about beyond Twitter is about the power that billionaires and the extremely wealthy have over all of us that is completely unhealthy and outsized and very dangerous for democracy. And whether that's buying Twitter or the Cox, you know, like running all their so-called, you know, AstroTurf campaigns or the oil industry or whatever it is, the idea that there's so much wealth and power in corporations to completely just set an agenda, that's what we have to organize against, whether that's Twitter or whether that's Enbridge, you know, we have to be out here organizing about that and making sure that people have the power and that it can't be taken away from us because of the shareholders. We'll end that there. Thanks, guys. Before we uh, wrap our panel discussion, I want us to quickly also chat about something else that's been on the news this week, and that's Operation Rolling Thunder. Here's a clip. On the 29th and the 30th of April, every home, streets, village, town, our flags out united, we stand. 
From coast to coast to all territory, red means Justin Trudeau must go. 29th, 30th operation, Rolling Thunder, Ottawa, Google your local schedule, schedule. I am Canadian. Okay, so the bikers are coming. Um, there's there's uh, reports in the news that as many as a, a whole thousand of them could show up in Ottawa starting Friday night and stay through the weekend. Pam, what do we know about what's going to happen this weekend and who's behind it? Well, we know for sure exactly who's behind it because you just have to look at the partners and who's speaking. So no matter how they're trying to portray it now, you've got this YouTube channel guy who is all about trying to make these freedom truckers into heroes. Uh, he's a partner. Then you've got this group called Freedom Fighters, which is trying to end the mandates and also all of the tyrannical bills and all of the tyrannical legislation so enacted by Parliament. I mean, I guess we would have no laws. And then, of course, Veterans for Freedom, which is all about restoring the rights that Canadians have lost under Trudeau. And so, we know what this is about. This is this freedom, emphasis on dumb movement. Um, but then you have to look at the key speaker. Now, I never mention ever their individual names. I don't like to promote any of these white supremacists. But there's a dude who is the key speaker. Uh, not only has he been arrested and charged with you know, making death threats against people, you know, politicians, public officials, and that kind of thing. He's also a well-known, very public and overt, Holocaust denier, racist, homophobe, and misogynist who promotes violence and engages in violence and threatens violence and counsels violence. So this is what's rolling into town. They're, they're not even pretending to be under the guise of, Oh, we're anti-mandate. In fact, when one of the organizers was interviewed, uh, he said, oh, no, this is purely about veterans. Like, no one's even mentioned veterans. This is all about they're rolling into town to end the tyranny. And here's the thing. So the people involved in it are saying, and if anybody tries to block our access to the war memorial, we advocate for a free-for-all. Now, what's a free-for-all in their terms? We already know they're advocating violence and an end to what they perceive to be anti-democracy. -dem you know, but what happened last time where people brought weapons, you know, like what was happening in, in the other provinces? Or the people were making threats and stalking people and harassing and physically assaulting women walking down the street. Now you've got bikers that are going to come in and do the same thing? What about any of that? has to do with veterans. It, it, none of that has to do with veterans. And they're saying they're coming back to physically take back the war memorial. Well, I don't know, what are they gonna do? Chop it down and take it somewhere where it's supposed to be? Or are they gonna urinate on it again? Because that's what their heroes did last time. People in Ottawa are rightfully concerned about what's rolling into town and equally concerned that the police are going to give them a rolling escort as they roll into town. I'm sure not unlike what they did last time. Can I do the theme song? <laughs> yeah, do it, do it. No, I mean, it's just funny, right? Because like a couple of weeks ago, if you're, you know, a loyal listener to the show, um, if you remember when we were talking about Noble Defender and we had that little thing about like, 
is it the name of a missile, you know, or is it yeah. like rolling thunder? Is it the name of a freedom convoy or is it the name of a missile, right? So, you know, we were joking about like the noble defender theme song. And I just think the rolling thunder theme song would be funny, like rolling thunder. Coming through the Ottawa, rolling thunder. There is no stopping, yeah, you know, rolling thunder, protecting your monument, rolling thunder. Pooping on the pavement, <laughs> you know. Like, come on, you know, like it's just so like G freedom, like. So I just think it's funny that we're just moving through the vehicles. You know, we did trucks, and now we're doing bikes. So what's next? You know, Karen's with their strollers, like strolling thunder. You know, like, you know, and we do that, like the because all. All white supremacist movements also have the role of like women as protectors of family. And, you know, we have this with the bouncy castles and stuff like the installation of the white family. Um, I also find it really funny that they're like, remember, the bylaws say don't pee and poo on the street. Like you have to be told that. (laughs) I know. if If you look at the communications from like Ottawa, they're like, remember, like obey the rules and don't poo in public, which they have to tell people because last time they did that. Yeah. Like, come on. Exactly. Come on. And Pam, I feel I feel bad for you because I know that you're a proud motorcycle uh, rider yes. and they're giving them a bad name. Yeah. I, I take great offense to that <laughs> remark. I am a dedicated dirt biker who stands for human rights, anti-racism, anti-sexism, anti-homophobia, and nowhere in any of our dirt biking community, adventure biking community, have we ever come across anybody who's like, yeah, let's, let's, you know, I don't know, take down the war memorial and put Trudeau in Guantanamo Bay of all places and celebrate tyranny. It's awful. I feel like I'm just, now I need to put on my helmet and go dirt biking around for a while and and let people know, listen, we are not free, dumb convoy people. We we are actually peace-loving people. And this is not all bikers, you know? Just like the not all truckers. (laughs) This is not all bikers. Please do not look at motorcyclists like this. This is going to be a select few of probably hate groups, violent people that are supported by the police as always. And... We're going to be in the same scenario unless they do something about it. Mm-hmm. You want my final joke on this? I just, <laughs> yes, made, it, yes, I just yes. made it up. This is yeah. this is brand new, hot off the presses. Um, <laughs> so you know how Pierre Polyev, we talked about how he knocks on all those doors. He should rename yeah. his campaign Polling Thunder. <laughs> oh! <laughs> yes, 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 yes. The possibilities are endless. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Pam, Al, Martin, thanks to all of you for the chat. Up next, I'll be talking to economist DT Cochran. The rate of inflation has reached a record high in Canada the highest it's been in more than 30 years. Prices are shooting up in all sectors of the economy, from food and energy to housing and transportation. And across the country, Canadian workers and households are being squeezed. A new report from the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives found that for almost two-thirds of people in the country, inflation has far outpaced their wage increases over the pandemic, which means effectively that there's been a pay cut for millions of workers. 
In corporate media, economists have tended to put the blame for inflation on low interest rates or excessive government spending, and they're using this opportunity to argue for more belt-tightening austerity. But our guest today says these explanations miss a big part of the picture. DT Cochran is an economist and a researcher with Canadians for Tax Fairness, where he just published a report on the causes of the rise in the cost of living. DT, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you. So the classic explanation we we hear for why inflation is going up is that there's too much money chasing too few goods. But your report points to a much simpler explanation. Can you tell us what you found? So you have this standard explanation of too much money chasing too few goods. This is based on, frankly, bad theory that has become commonplace knowledge with little understanding of where this idea comes from. We think the much simpler explanation is that those who set prices are setting prices higher. Mm -hmm. So we took a look at thousands of corporate financial results over the last 20 years to analyze profit margins, which we felt could be a good indicator for what is happening with corporate prices, the prices that corporations are responsible for, which is a lot of the prices in our economy. And what we found was a dramatic jump in profit margins in 2021. So at the same time as a lot of Canadian households are still financially struggling, corporations had one of their best years ever. So prior to the pandemic, corporate profit margins averaged about 9%. Uh, in 2021, they almost doubled to 16%. One potential explanation for this is high commodity prices. The Canadian economy, uh, the Canadian corporate economy, is overrepresented with commodity corporations. So Potentially, the fact that commodity prices have been high during the, the pandemic is the explanation. So for our analysis, we also removed all of the commodity companies. And even among non-commodity companies, there is still a substantial jump in profit margins. We can actually show the graph for that. For people who are listening to the podcast or, or can't see the graph, this is showing, as you said, the profit margin for Canadian non-commodity companies over the last 20 or so years. And, you know, you see this massive jump in 2021. And so explain to us how this is happening. What is contributing to this to this big jump here? So the explanation for where this jump could come from is either some massive boost in productivity. There's been some incredible innovation that's allowing corporations to produce much more from the same amount of input. There is zero evidence for that. Mm -hmm. If this is not about increased productivity, this is about corporations increasing their prices. That allows them to take a larger portion of their sales as profits. There are disruptions in the global economy that are raising costs that corporations themselves face. But the real question is, who gets to pass along the increased costs yeah. that they have? And the more powerful the corporation, the more of those costs they can pass along. 
then not only can they pass those costs along, they can take advantage of turmoil associated with the pandemic, but also with climate disasters, also with war to boost their own profit margins. And in corporate financial disclosures, you're actually seeing a remarkable degree of honesty where corporate executives are saying exactly this. We've been able to raise prices and that's improving our profits. Yeah, and just to break it down for people a little bit more, there are reasons why costs are increasing for corporations. And if they were they themselves were to absorb their, those costs, then we would have seen their profits fall. Absolutely. But instead, not only are the profits not staying flat, so you know, they're not just raising their prices a little bit in order to keep their profits what they were before. The fact that they're rising to this extent, it tells us that they're actually engaging in price gouging, right? Yes, absolutely. So, of course, a lot of the the Canadian corporations, they sell their goods onto other corporations and not onto households. So they're raising their prices, but then the corporations buying their goods are able to raise their own prices, but then raise them to an even greater degree. So we don't think that corporations can set prices anywhere that they want, but it is pretty obvious that they are setting prices, that corporations are responsible to a large degree for our current inflationary situation. And we need to understand that much better than we currently do, much better than these banal, facile, too much money, chasing too few goods. That is an explanation that leads us nowhere when what we actually need is greater understanding into exactly which prices are rising and why are they rising Once we know that, then we can figure out an appropriate policy solution, not the terrible solutions that are currently being offered. Increasing interest rates and cutting government spending will harm the people who are already struggling the most. If we increase interest rates in order to curb inflation, the mechanism by which that works is unemployment. I do want to break down the common responses we hear And for one, we have the fiscal hawks who are arguing that we need to rein in government spending, that we need to balance our budgets. There's a lot of fear mongering about the deficit. Where would those kinds of policies take us? Those kinds of policies would take us into economic doldrums. Uh, They would do nothing good for our economy. The pandemic has shown us what a vital role government can and should play in backstopping our economy, which then should lead us to recognize that they could shape the economy in the direction that we need it to go, not just to recover from the pandemic, but to deal with the ongoing climate crisis. Cuts to government spending inevitably harm the people who are already suffering the most. The financial supports that the government offered They were insufficient, they were misdirected, but we have seen that among the likely positive effects has been a reduction in inequality because those at the bottom have seen slightly higher incomes, which is huge for people who are living on the bare minimum. So the cuts inevitably will go there uh, and harm the people who are inevitably harmed whenever these kinds of policy decisions are made. There are even now explicit calls for, um, I mean, I'm specifically thinking about a Globe and Mail column I read last week, 
where the pundit was explicitly calling for a recession. Uh, and I want to quote, I mean, he said, if we're serious about targeting inflation, quote, tipping the economy into recession may not only be unavoidable, but desirable. You know, not a single word about who that would impact the most and, and who would be bearing the brunt of that the most, right? It reminds me of the comment by Madeleine Albright when she was asked about all of the dead Iraqi children due to U.S. sanctions and her saying, well, we think that it's worth it. So this Globe and Mail columnist, he's not the one who's going to be unemployed if we have a recession. Mm -hmm. It's going to be all of these other people. And we also know that people from typically marginalized communities are disproportionately last hired, first fired. So it exacerbates all kinds of social inequities. The mere suggestion that we should be using a recession to try to get inflation under control is inhumane. Yeah. The other orthodox response we typically hear for how to fight inflation is to have central banks raise the interest rate, right, um, to, to slow down the economy. And the Bank of Canada did do just that recently. Um, we saw the biggest one-time increase that there's been in 20-plus years, I believe. But what would addressing or what would raising interest rates in the current moment do to actually address inflation, given what we know about the causes of inflation in the current moment? Yeah, so I, I mentioned already that the mechanism by which that actually works, if raising interest rates is actually going to curb inflation, the way it works is by creating unemployment. Mm -hmm. So imagine that you're a, a middle-sized company and your input prices are going up because you buy from a large corporation that's passing its costs along, but maybe you sell to a, another large corporation and so you can't pass along those cost increases. So your own margins are being squeezed. Now interest rates go up. You have a huge amount of debt because of the pandemic. Rising interest rates is another rising cost. Maybe that eliminates whatever margin you had. Continuing is not an option. So you go bankrupt, all of your employees are out of work. Well, all of their demand is now eliminated. So if you're trying to reduce demand as a means of getting inflation under control, that's a way to do it. That ends up having a ripple effect throughout the economy because this company perhaps was buying supplies from other medium-sized companies that have now lost customers. Hmm. And so they're losing sales, so perhaps they can't continue to operate, so they go bankrupt. So all those workers go unemployed. Those workers were spending their money perhaps in their local communities, spending it at the restaurants in their neighborhoods. And the loss of those workers as customers means those restaurants all close down. So all of those employees become unemployed. The flip side of this is that all of the large corporations who can absorb this higher interest rate, well, now they can buy up assets on the cheap. So you get greater corporate concentration at the same time as you get rising unemployment due to this extremely blunt instrument as a means of controlling inflation, which is a general rise in prices, when what we're actually seeing is prices rising in very specific places for very different reasons that require much more specific policy responses. And that's what we need to be looking into. Where are prices rising and why? That will dictate what the proper policy solution is. Maybe it's some form of price control. Maybe it's some form of crown corporation that will 
create the productive capacity that we lost due to decades of ill-advised globalization policies. Maybe it's greater worker training in order to bring more workers into a sector to increase production. There are lots of potential policy solutions, but in order to get the right policy solutions, we need to understand the actual reasons why specific prices are rising. Yeah. I want to play us a clip. It's becoming a regular feature of the show, playing a clip of Pierre Polyev. But I want to play what he thinks we should do in order to address inflation or to use his new favorite term, just inflation. Um, Have a look at this video. How are we going to take care of the overinflation? We're going to stop stop printing money, phase out the deficit, and cut the, the inflationary taxes that are driving up the cost of living. So, and that should even everything out by when? Well, it, it'll take me. I think it'll take me about a year and a half to get to tackle inflation after I become prime minister. Uh, but um, you know, they're creating a bigger and bigger mess every day, and uh, it's going to be a lot to clean up. But basically, stop creating cash and start creating the stuff cash buys. Stop printing money. I mean, it seems so simple. If we just had less money printed, there would be less money to go around and there'd be no inflation. No? Yeah, I, I on his little portmanteau of just inflation, just from a comms perspective, it doesn't work because it makes it sound like you're saying, oh, well, it's just inflation. Don't don't worry about it. That's the opposite of what he's trying to say. So that's silly just on the face of it. That's not my area of expertise. Um, yeah, I, I don't know if Polyevra believes the things that he's saying, in which case he's just a useful idiot to those who benefit from the economic status quo, or if he knows what he's saying is wrong and he's just being duplicitous, ultimately it doesn't matter. Uh, what he's spouting is pure nonsense. His reference to inflationary taxes is so strange, considering that one of the roles of taxes is to draw money back out of the economy, and he's saying there's too much money in the economy. Yeah. One of the things that people who make this too much money, chasing too few goods, rarely address is who they actually think it is that has this too much money. Like, who do they think should have less money? Should it be the people already trying to survive on sub-poverty social assistance? Is it the nurses who are overworked and understaffed? Maybe they think it's the auditors at Canada Revenue Agency who audit the largest corporations and wealthy individuals. Maybe these are the people they want to not have the cash. I will say very plainly who I think has too much money, and it's Mm -hmm. the wealthy. The wealthy have too much money that they're able to use in all kinds of socially detrimental ways. They're able to hire the tax lawyers and the accountants to help them avoid taxes. They're able to take too many flights and consume other high emission goods. They're able to buy up too many residential properties to be their assets. The spending of the wealthy has all kinds of deformatory effects on our economy. So certainly they should have much less money, but taxing them is not going to be inflationary. That's going to be a way to reduce some of the demand for some of this stuff that we should be reducing demand for. That's the perfect segue to what I wanted to ask you about next, which is the recommendations in your report, right? So if we wanted to address the corporate greed that's driving inflation, what do we need to do? 
who do we tax? So, <laughs> so, so first, I'm, I'm actually going to advocate for just greater transparency. So mm-hmm. our report looked at publicly listed Canadian headquartered corporations. It didn't look at private Canadian corporations like, mm-hmm. say, the Jim Pattison Group, whose eponymous uh, owner has doubled his wealth from about $8 billion to $16 billion during the pandemic. It wasn't able to look at Canadian subsidiaries of non-Canadian corporations like Walmart. So there's a lot of companies it wasn't actually able to to analyze. Mm. What we need is country-by-country financial reporting so that we can see where revenue is actually being generated, where profits are actually being taken, and where taxes are actually being taken. And this can be an important piece to actually figuring out what is driving inflation as well as other gains that corporations have been making in recent years. So greater transparency is the first thing. We need to raise the general corporate income tax rate. It has been cut from almost 40% in the 80s down to 15% under Harper. Both liberal and conservative governments were cutting the corporate income tax rate. It has remained at 15% under Trudeau. The reasons why it was cut were supposedly increased productivity, more jobs, greater well-being. That has not come to pass. All that's happened is greater inequality and a worsened climate crisis. We also need to increase the capital gains inclusion rate. So what does that mean? So every dollar of income that you earn for working is subject to income tax. Every dollar that you take from profitably selling an asset, only half of that is subject to income tax. That overwhelmingly benefits the ultra-wealthy who own the vast majority of the assets. And when corporate profits are rising, asset values are rising along with it. So raising the corporate income tax rate, raising the capital gains inclusion rate, and increasing corporate transparency are three of the ways that Canadians for Tax Fairness recommends as part of dealing with the issue of corporations driving higher prices. Yeah. Uh, And you've said that, you know, in your uh, piece I was reading from you that basically in the way our economy works right now, any money that circulates, uh, whether it comes from government investments uh, or wherever else, it inevitably just trickles up to the wealthy, right? So, in that sense, then, are these kinds of taxes a way of redistributing and recirculating that money? Absolutely. Absolutely. So the government put an unprecedented amount of money into the economy as part of dealing with the pandemic. And they did so for two reasons. First and most importantly, to support households so they could pay their rent, so they could still buy groceries, so they could still you know, pay for heat and light But secondly, to keep the financial system from seizing up. Mm. If money hadn't continued to flow through the financial system, we would have added another global financial crisis on top of the COVID crisis. So you need to keep that money moving through the economy. But corporations just inevitably skim off a portion of every dollar that flows through them in the form of profits, in the form of interest. And that 
pools in corporate coffers, and then they distribute part of that to their wealthy owners. And so it pools in the accounts of those wealthy owners who then shift it into other types of assets, shift it into tax havens, take various measures to try to protect this wealth that they didn't work hard to make. They didn't invent some wonderful new innovation. They didn't earn it. They don't deserve it. So there's no reason to let them continue to control it. So these taxes are a way to keep that money moving through the economy. It comes back to government, which can then spend it back into the economy where it can do actual good instead of remaining under the control of the wealthy who use it in many ways that are actively harmful to the majority of us. And I think during the pandemic specifically, people were really outraged to find that programs that were ostensibly set up to help us, like SUS, the wage subsidy, ended up just basically facilitating this pandemic profiteering by huge numbers of corporations in Canada. Yeah, last year we, we put out a report on record corporate profits. So this was looking at the, the profits that corporations made during 2020, you know, the worst full year of the pandemic, yeah. high levels of unemployment. And we identified many corporations that still managed to achieve a record level of profit. And several of those had collected cues. So I understood the basic justification for the program. I understood that in the early days of the pandemic, figuring out how best to keep people whole, one of the justifications was you keep people attached to their jobs. But this resulted in what is likely the largest boondoggle in Canadian history. And we won't really understand the full extent by which this money was siphoned to those who needed it the least, likely for years to come. Uh, but I, I think that it is a, it is a scandal um, just waiting to truly be uncovered. Yeah. I, just to bring this to a close, I mean, the, the some of the ideas you mentioned, um, the taxation ideas that you mentioned, I mean, they're overwhelmingly popular with Canadians. There was a poll last year done by Abacus, which I'm sure you're familiar with, and it found basically super majority support for taxing the rich, you know, close to 90% of the people in the poll said they support a wealth tax, similar numbers support increasing the income tax rate, others uh, supported the excessive corporate profit tax. And what was also interesting is that support for these ideas cut across regional demographic and even partisan divides. So there's no political party that has a clear advantage on this issue. Now, we know the right historically has been really good at stoking people's fears and anxieties about the cost of living going up. But I'm wondering what you think it takes for the left to also be able to channel those fears and anxieties into political support for the kinds of programs and policies it would take to, to go after the, the culprits that you describe um, behind inflation. Yeah, I I see that the, the widespread recognition of corporate power. I went into economics because I couldn't square the things that economists said with what seemed like the obvious fact of widespread, rampant, entrenched corporate power. I thought, well, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm missing something. Two degrees later, no, I was not wrong. I was right. 
corporate power is rampant. And not only that, the economists are willfully ignoring it. And I think most people see that. Everywhere you turn, you find corporate power affecting our lives in harmful ways, causing us harm. Yet, somehow, the prevailing narrative of supply and demand setting uh, prices through the market at an equilibrium that clears the market has taken hold. And I think the reason it's taken hold is because it's so useful to the corporations who have actual price setting power. So we need to tap into people's recognition that corporations are powerful, their anger about that power, and connect it very simply to the fact that corporations set a large majority of the prices that people face in their day-to-day lives. This is what is so confounding to me about our report and what we had to explain is that the story is so much simpler than the dominant narrative. Mm -hmm. You have corporations who sell us many of the goods that we need. They get to set the prices on that. Let's start from there when we're wanting to understand where inflation is coming from. They're price makers, not price takers they are like price you make- <laughs> Corporations are price makers. They're not price takers. Mm-hmm. But then let's connect that to the fact that corporations have broad control within our economy. Capitalism has often been juxtaposed against command economies, and we were told that the collapse of the Soviet Union showed the failure of command economies. But we have a command economy. It's just commanded by the executives in the C-suites, and it's commanded in the interest of themselves and the wealthy owners of the corporations. So we need to juxtapose our existing corporate command economy with a publicly managed economy and then talk about the economy we actually want to see. Offer, again, a clear vision for what we think a sustainable, just, caring economy can and should be. Mm. Well, we'll leave it there. DT, thanks so much for joining us today. It was great to talk to you. Thank you for having me. T. Cochran, an economist and researcher with Canadians for Tax Fairness. And that's our show for today. Thanks for tuning in, as always. And if you like what we do and want to help do more of it, please consider becoming a member of The Breach and donating to our work. You can do that at breachmedia.ca. And to keep up to date with new episodes of our show, make sure to subscribe to our channel on YouTube. And if you're listening to the podcast version, don't forget to rate, like, and share. I'm Donya Ziai, signing off for all of us at The Breach Show. See you next week. Yeah.